to the Storyteller series, a Night Shift radio original. Today's story is written by Ben Curl and is titled The Gathering of Drowned Voices. James H. Kowalczyk is played by Casey Ryan. Peter Lotti by Aaron Carbolito. Catherine Kakula by Amy Wyant. Ed Seppinen by Caleb Coy. Mr. Magnuson by Michael Cherniak. The narrator is played by Mike Wyant Jr. And sound effects are provided by Emily Hendricks. This episode is directed, produced, and edited by Mike Wyant Jr. For more information and to read our print edition, please visit nightshiftradio.com. You can also get info on all Night Shift Radio shows by signing up for our weekly newsletter in the show notes of this episode. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Caleb from Night Shift Radio. If you love spooky stories as much as I do, but maybe aren't entirely sure that you believe in the paranormal, then you'll enjoy the newest Night Shift Radio original, Possibly Normal. Twice a month, we tell a true story of possible paranormal encounters from the perspective of the person who witnessed the events. In these stories, we offer no attempted explanation, only the truth as it was observed. So join me as Night Shift Radio presents Possibly Normal, starting January 2022, wherever you listen to podcasts. Before we get into the story, I would like to let you know that, unlike our typical stories, the gathering of drowned voices makes use of sound effects. You may notice popping, static, or even moments of silence. This is part of the story, and we hope you enjoy it. Now please, enjoy our story. On March the 3rd, 1984, Detective Harmelson of the Houghton Police Department acquired a stack of papers, freshly typed from a deserted hotel room on the second floor of the Best Western, overlooking the canal. A 32-year-old man, James H. Kowalczyk, had rented the room the preceding three nights. According to staff, Kowalczyk did not leave his room after arrival, at least not to their knowledge, until sometime after 11 p.m. on the night of March the 2nd. He was a quiet guest. Occasionally, they heard him talking to someone, presumably on the telephone. Management alerted the police when a housekeeper found his abandoned belongings. In addition to the papers, he had left behind a suitcase, wallet, car keys, typewriter, coat, an audio cassette player, and five cassettes. To date, no one has found any sign of what happened to Kowalczyk. He led a solitary life, unremarkable in any way, except for the manuscript he left behind. I obtained the original papers in early 1998 through an anonymous source. Witness, James H. Kowalczyk. To whom it concerns, no instrument can match the seduction of the human voice. The rhythms, the cadence, the pitches, the sliding and trembling vowels followed by the click or patter of a tongue on the roof of the mouth. Words are incidental. Afterthoughts. Nothing can haunt you or fool you like the intonation of a voice. I shouldn't have played the cassettes. To think how long those frozen syllables lingered around the spools wound up in fury and desperation. How did they not wear thin? 
The voices of Lottie and the lady became clearer every time I listened. It was like the tape got stronger the more it spun. I could have gotten a job far away, maybe San Francisco. Could have ditched the Midwest. I was not untalented. I could have made a life. But these two towns, Houghton and Hancock, crawling up steep hills on either side of each other would not relinquish their grip. The weathered brick smeltered and its narrow smokestacks loomed along the horizon of my daydreams. Voices from the deep woods, dirt log roads, and dipping mines of the Kuwana Peninsula had called, reaching me through the cassettes. I could not tune them out. No help to think that way. From this window, where I watch snow whirl down into a black canal, I shudder at the red blinking lights in alternation from opposite towers of the lift bridge, two mute watchers flashing dull signals. Then I glimpse my haggard reflection, half realized in the window, a pale face from another dimension full of regret for what could have been. But I have to keep going until I find her. I chose this path. I lived here a couple years. Well, in Hancock, the other side of the canal, the gateway to the Kuwana Peninsula. In the United States, Hancock houses the largest proportion of Finnish Americans, with their long names full of vowels and double consonants, almost always ending in nen or la. Some still call this place Kuparasari, meaning Copper Island, a land of dense wood, rocky outcropping, desolate beaches, harsh winters, sparse inhabitants, and old brick foundations besieged with moss and ivory. The Kuwana Peninsula pokes the frigid Lake Superior like a displaced mass of human memory. Once you cross the lift bridge from Haughton to Hancock, you've entered an island adrift in the sea of time, tentuously tied to a neglected corner of American mainland. It was 1977. Until then, I'd spent my entire life in Illinois, born and raised in Fox Lake, completing my undergraduate and master's at DePaul. I was studying comparative religions at Swami College while working part-time as a clerk at a law firm. They always gave me the shittiest work. I was a PhD candidate, for Christ's sake, and they had me collecting documents. They couldn't figure out the settings on the new copier. Peter's done. Someone needs to clean out his office. Mr. Magnuson snapped beside a paper cutter where I stood clutching a handful of oversized paper clips. Peter Lottie had been there for 30 years. He had sued every auto insurer in the Kuwana. He won quite a few cases, some real big ones representing employees and retirees of the Quincy Mine, the Red Jacket Mine, the Franklin Mine, the Cliff Mine. All of them closed. The firm used to joke he had shut them all down. They went broke paying out his clients, they said. He had made plenty of enemies. Tons of admirers, too, but he'd cracked. In 1970, someone had crawled up between his ribcage and cut out the bottom of his heart. His decline was steady, 
as if an anchor had been tied to his collarbone, pulling his narrow chest and bony shoulders down towards hell. His eyes burned holes in the carpet, then flitted up past her head as he spoke, as if afraid his words would make the ceiling tiles drop. I only saw his final two and a half years, a sinking ghost. A weight hung heavy, his neck strained to keep his eyes off the floor. At first, I thought he avoided eye contact out of arrogance, as if I were too lowly to be acknowledged. After a couple months, I started to suspect something else. He knew he was a shadow. He knew how awful he was to behold, and he was afraid of infecting anyone else with his wraith-like wasting. After those first couple of months, I hardly saw him again. He would disappear into his office behind the frosted glass panels of his closed door. A soft light would glow into the night. I would hear the little clicks and muted voices. He'd be there when I left at 5 p.m. Next morning, it would look like he hadn't slept at all. In fact, there were at least three times he wore the same clothes as the night before. But he wasn't working any cases. Not that any of us knew. Magnuson and the others put up with him because of his legacy. They handed him documents to review even though they'd already reviewed them. At times, they had filed a brief before giving it to him. He didn't notice, and he offered no comments. They kept paying him his senior partner share even though he contributed nothing. It was too sad for everyone. His last big case, a wrongful death suit against the Quincy Mining Company, had fizzled out to nothing. His client, thoroughly discredited before the trial, fled to Canada. He said there aren't many files that need to be preserved. Magnuson said, peering over his bifocals, sitting in a leather swivel chair. There may be a few for storage. Check the dates. Most of all can be shredded. I had seen the interior of Lottie's office a handful of times over the past year. Partial glimpses as a hunched man shambled in and out. A high-ceilinged room with shelves of legal tomes sagging along the wall. Black and pale green filing cabinets, antique armchairs. I dreaded the prospect of sifting through the musty mess he'd left behind. He particularly mentioned materials from the Kukula case. Magnuson droned. Interview cassettes. Just destroy them. My job description did not include cleaning, but I had learned not to ask questions of Mr. Magnuson, so... I accepted my assignment without inquiry or complaint. When he handed me a thick bronze key, his eyes drooped back to the brief in my hands. He swiveled away from me. I left. It felt like walking into a sacred and forsaken place. The wood-paneled room was a compartment of Lottie's mind, preserved against the vicious gravity that had assaulted his body. Newspaper clippings from seven years ago and older sat beneath paperweights. Why wasn't Lottie cleaning the office himself? Wouldn't he know the documents better than anyone? These were questions I should have asked Mr. Magnuson, but I didn't. The quiet office seemed a convenient escape. I thought I could turn it into a two-day project at least. Sifting through the large filing cabinets was tedious, but it did not take as long as I expected. By 4.15, I was nearly done, having neatly arranged and labeled a stack of banker's boxes by the door. That's when I turned to a narrow green cabinet nestled against Lottie's desk. I had rummaged around in his rollout drawer to find the key, buried among a thousand unused pencils. The top drawer of the cabinet was empty. The bottom drawer is where I found them. 
Those damn drowned voices that have never stopped spinning through the background of my uneventful life. A precise hand had written Kukula v. Quincy Smelter in black marker on each of the cassette cases. There were five subtitles. Interview of Catherine Kukula, Interview of Benjamin Faircrown, Interview of Foreman Sepinen, Interview of Catherine Kukula Part 2, and Interview of... Someone has scribbled out the name of the last interviewee. Had I known what I know now, I would have built a bonfire that night and watched until every inch of tape had melted. Of course, even if I had tried, I'll bet those voices would have slipped through the flames, curled up inside the smoke, twisting green fumes into my nostrils, infiltrating my mind. You cannot kill voices like those. In any case, it's too late to reflect. The snow keeps folding into the black canal surface like minuscule white feathers dissolving into the highway of obsidian. Soon I will walk the lift bridge to what awaits me on the other side. I cannot stop now that I have returned. Most of my partners had left the office. I pushed the first cassette into the player, shoved the panel shut, and clicked the button. Sitting in Lottie's red, high back leather armchair, I listened with the volume low. After some static, I heard voices. For the sake of brevity, I will omit the tedious lawyerly questions and leave only what is necessary for context. I must note that Lottie's voice sounded different from when I had heard him in real life. There was a crispness, a lilt, as if every time he spoke, he expected his words to lead to an answer or at least a course of action. In short, he sounded confident that a truth obtainable by language existed. Interview of Catherine Kakula, March the 17th, 1970, 8 o'clock a.m. Do you, Mrs. Kakula, agree to this interview being recorded for my own investigative purposes? I do. I do not betray the confidences of my clients. Anything you say will not be shared, unless you agree. Thank you. How long were you and your husband married? A year. Well, it would have been a year on the 15th of this month. I'm sorry. And have you two always lived in Hancock? No, not always. I was born in Copper Harbor. Tom was from Emek. We met in Houghton a year and a half ago. Uh, and then we moved across the canal into Hancock, uh, right onto Quincy Street, when Tom got his promotion. At the Quincy Smelter, correct? Correct. And is it still your belief that the operators of the Quincy Smelter are responsible for the death of your husband? I have no doubt. And how did you come to this belief? Because one of them confessed to me. What? <laughs> Why didn't you share this before? Because I didn't want to trouble you. Trouble me? We could easily get such an admission into trial. Depending on the nature of what was said, did they put it in writing? No. One of them met with me. When? A week ago. A week after Tom died. How did this meeting come about? I went to Tom's office. Go on. I found myself walking through the corridors of the office building. Um, Tom had left his key at home. I was looking for his coat. I thought maybe he'd left it in his office. I wandered to a strange wooden door at the back of a long hallway. I know I shouldn't have opened it, but I couldn't help it. I needed to find Tom's coat. I worried he'd be cold. Even though he was dead, I worried he was shivering. Around a conference room table, I saw them, lit by a circle of dim, fluorescent table lamps. 
discussing blueprints projected on the wall. One of them turned to look at me. The others didn't seem to notice. Who was there? The board of directors. Of the Quincy Mining Company? I mean the real board of directors. Go on. The one who turned to me, he was old. He was hunched. No one could have been that old. He told me I couldn't be there. He would meet me at the lift bridge. So I walked there, to the middle of the bridge, to meet him. I don't remember stopping at home, but I must have because I had my scarf with me. It was cold. The canal was frozen. To meet whom? J.T. Black Dune Sr. I haven't heard of him. I told you. He's one of the directors. The real directors. What do you mean? Her servants, Mr. Lottie. Whose? The Lady of the Hollows. A pounding on the door office made me jump. I clicked pause. Pretending to be absorbed with wiping down the narrow green cabinet, I looked at Mr. Magnuson standing in the doorway. I don't know why I knocked. Habits. Funny things, aren't they? Beneath his thick, arched eyebrows, a pair of eyes judged me. You don't have to finish that tonight. It's not urgent. That's okay. I'd rather get it done all at once, I said without thinking. I should be able to wrap up in a couple of hours. Mr. Magnuson squinted as he placed his driving glasses on. Then you'll be the last one out. Make sure to lock up. Okay. I waited for the sound of his car rolling down the hill before resuming the tape. My hands were shaking. Once I had settled down, I gazed at a faded newspaper clipping tacked to a cork pencil holder on the desk. The headline read, Mechanical Engineer Dies in Accident at Quincy Smelter. A photograph of Tom Kakula showed me a handsome young man with a thick blonde mustache. I thought of going home, but the voice of Catherine would not leave my head. Never had I heard such mingled calmness and fright. She had to be insane. But if I did not hear the conclusion, I would not be able to sleep, haunted by the low tones she had used when she pronounced the Lady of the Hollows. I had to hear how crazy she was in order to comfort myself. So I clicked the play button. Who? Excuse me? The Lady of the Hollows. Who is she? I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard that name. You just said it. You said they were her servants. No, I was explaining that Tom knew all of the safety protocols. He was the de facto safety educator at the smelter. There's no way he could have fallen over the handrail, not wearing any gear. That's not what you were saying, Miss Kakula. I know what I was saying. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to trap me? Aren't you my attorney? I have replayed this section of the cassette many times, as I believe a third voice begins to speak very suddenly cut off. The voice is so faint, however, that no matter how much I magnify the volume, I have never made out whether it truly was someone else in the room or nothing more than a radio in a car passing outside Lottie's office. I didn't mean to upset you. Please, go on. I will spare you by saying that the rest of the interview proceeds without oddity. Cather makes no more mention of sleepwalking, a secret board of directors, or the Lady of the Hollows. Lottie asks her questions about the accident, and Catherine describes how Tom had been warning the company for months about safety concerns in the smelter. She goes into the specifics with an impressive attention to detail. She was every bit as intelligent as her husband, and evidently appreciated the intricacies of his work. If you listen close, you will notice hints of wavering trepidation in Lottie's voice. He no longer lilts 
His sentences no longer seem confident of finding their ending. Looking back, I think it was his growing hesitation, an audible record of the thoughts succumbing to nothingness that drew me in with a rope around my wrist. His faltering led me onward, against my will, to the edge of the wall where intonations reverberate blind and disjointed, to where our words fail. By the time I had finished the tape through its drawn-out and anticlimactic conclusion, the window of the office was pitch black. The wind whistled through a fissure in the frame. Lottie evidently had given up on caulking the thing. The sagging wooden building they used as an office had all sorts of problems like this. Wind was always sneaking up through cracks. I don't know why they didn't move. How did Lottie tolerate the infernal whistling? I went to the supply room, found a half-used canister of caulk, and sealed it shut. The room became silent. So silent, I realized how alone I was. Even if I walked home to my apartment up the hill, I would be no less alone. This place, the Cuna, with its peeling tar paper roofs and brick streets, was alien to me. The people, with their thick northern accents and dated clothing, were alien. I had never been good at making friends. So I went back to the cassettes. I could not listen to more of Catherine, and I did not want to hear more of the smelter. So I grabbed the one labeled Benjamin Faircrown, as nothing I'd seen in the newspaper clippings gave me any indication who he was. In that silent room, that quieted chamber of Lottie's mind, the static erupted like a volcano. I welcomed the grating disturbance and the voices that floated like ash trails around me. Interview of Benjamin Faircrown, March the 19th, 1970, 1 o'clock p.m. Interview of Benjamin Faircrown, Neighbor, March the 19th, 1970, 1 o'clock p.m. Mr. Faircrown, I want to ask you about your neighbor, Catherine Kakula. Yeah, of course. Anything to help? How long have you been neighbors? Oh, they moved in now. What was it? A year ago. She and her husband, Tom. Good folk. Did you ever notice any odd behavior? What's odd to you? Reality. Did she talk to herself? Did she see things that no one else could see? Sure, she talked to herself. Who doesn't now and then? But she had a good head on her shoulders. Especially considering all she'd gone through. Like what? Didn't she tell you about her first husband? A branch crashed on the roof. I heard it scrape the shingles as it slid. I tried not to look out the window, out of an irrational fear that something outside would see me looking and turn its eyes on me. It was nothing but a branch. No, she did not. Seven years ago, almost to the day of Tom's death, she lost Paul in a boating accident near Isle Royale. How? He ran a charter, but... One night he went out by himself. No one knew why. He never came back. He washed up on the rocks. Did she ever talk to you about it? You shouldn't blame her. Blame her for what? She came from Karelia, a persecuted land. Therefore, persecution is all she's ever known. 
She was born in Copper Harbor. The Lady of the Hollows was brought by accident, from far away. When the fishermen realized what she was, they burned her with marks, then buried her in the cold. They concealed it, tried to make everyone forget. Now she calls her witness. This is no crime, not under the laws of men and women, not under the laws of any god. The witnesses go willingly. Every seven years, another testament. A voice must not, cannot, drown. Was it Catherine who told you about the lady? I asked if it was Catherine who told you about the lady. What? From here repeats the pattern of Lottie's earlier conversation with Catherine. Benjamin Faircrown denies having said anything about a woman from Karalia or a previous husband of Catherine's. He gives a credible and detailed description of Kakula's unremarkable presence in the neighborhood. Finally, Lottie, exasperated, losing the ability or will to ask further questions, shuts the tape off. You can almost see the leaden weight of his fingertip as it smashes the button in defeat. I replayed both tapes, wondering if perhaps their words had been misheard or misunderstood, but they both had said things they later denied. Tapes do not lie. I thought with sadness of Lottie's last seven years, loitering around his office with no direction, his inner compass demagnetized. If he continued to struggle with these delusional people, dealing with tragedy by way of strange but understandable disassociation, I could sympathize. I saw the beginnings of his ghost-like transformation. At least, this is what I thought at the time, before I had listened to the remaining cassettes. Interview of Ed Zapanin, March the 18th, 1970, 9 o'clock a.m., Foreman, Quincy Smelter. Hold on. Do you have to record all this? It's for my own investigation. I double-check for consistency. If I were to summarize the statements, I'd admit details and reword things according to my own inclinations. It would become my own narrative. That's no help to anyone. You didn't record her, did you? Who? Stop recording. Stop. Settle down. Give me a second. He stood at the top of the guardrail and threw himself in, just like I said in the report. He stretched his arms out wide, then into the flames. It reminded me of what my uncle said about all these accidents over the years. Testament by water, testament by fire. None find anything but whispers, wherever it is they go. Who said that? Just old men's stories, Mr. Lighty. Nothing more. You're leaving. There's nothing more to say. I skimmed through the files. Ed Sippinen had worked at the smelter for 18 years. Not long after the interview, he moved to Sault Ste. Marie. His personal history was normal. He had three kids. He liked to fish for northern pike. I remember that I hesitated for a long time before inserting the cassette with the second interview of Catherine. In truth, I was becoming terrified of her. Yes, she may have been going mad, but there was nothing overtly incriminating about anything she had said. Perhaps it was the sound of Lottie's voice whenever he mentioned her. It quivered ever so slightly. I wondered where Lottie was at that moment. I felt desire to speak to him. Maybe it was because whenever the tapes clicked off, I felt so profoundly alone. 
I needed to know that someone else had heard these things. I needed to hear a confirming voice that wasn't on the cassette. It was getting late. I had already missed my routine bedtime, meaning no matter when I turned in, tomorrow would be a drag. I had come this far. I might as well finish what I had started. I inserted the tape. Why do you need to interview me again? I told you everything the first time. I need you to hear something. The tape of the first interview plays, but the sleepwalking account of Catherine is not there. It is gone. The interview moves straight to the account of the smelter and Tom's safety concerns. Mr. Lati, are you okay? It was there. That's impossible. What are you trying to show me? The thing you said, the first things. Have you requested the incident report yet? Yes, yes. They're on my desk. I haven't had a chance to fully review. I don't get what you're trying to find. I'll show you what Benjamin Fairground said. Who? Your neighbor. The one next door. There's no one next door. We're on a corner lot. The house next to us has been empty for years. The tape of the interview with Benjamin Faircrown plays uninterrupted. The occasional sound of Lottie or Catherine shifting in their seats. Well? I don't know how to say this. You need to tell me everything. Say it. What about your first husband? I was never married before, Tom. Then why did your neighbors say you were? That was your voice, Mr. Lottie. It was lower, but it was you. I don't understand. What? No, no, I I went to the house. We spoke in his yard. There's no one in that house. Whoever he was, he wasn't my neighbor if you saw someone there. Why did you hire me anyways? Because I heard you're the best. My husband is dead. But now I'm worried that, well, that it's taking a toll on you. You don't look so well. Thank you, Miss Kakula. For your concern, I mean. But I'm fine. And I think perhaps it may just be that the reports won't show. There are other avenues the case has to take sometimes. Thank you. I apologize for... I shouldn't have made you come today. We'll talk on Monday after I... Recording ends. I listened to the interview with Benjamin Faircrown. Could Catherine have been right? The voice of Faircrown did sound remarkably similar to that of Lottie. Had his professional reputation as an attorney fooled me? There was a different quality between the two voices, marked distinctions in the mannerisms and intonations. Lottie would have had to have been an incredible actor. That seemed improbable given what I knew. And the things Foreman Sepinen said were strange. But would they have been so strange if I hadn't heard them after the conversation with Fairground? But no, I had heard Catherine speak of the Lady of the Hollows, too. I replayed it many times to make sure that it was real. Lottie could not have mimicked that voice. Unless... He had spent so many years alone with these tapes. There were indeed particularities in these recordings. Only one tape remained. The one with the scribbled out name. Something inside me said I should stop. My inner compass, which I ignored, was pointing me away. I could go home to my empty, quiet apartment. I could sleep. I could listen to... 
or destroy the tapes tomorrow. I sat there for a long while, uneasy with Lottie's tall chair, staring at the green filing cabinet, thinking I heard a branch snap on the ground outside. I stood up as if to leave, then chided myself for giving in to the paranoia the cassettes had induced. I wouldn't let my mind get the best of me. I would listen. In defiance of my own fear, I sat down, inserted the final cassette, and I clicked the play button. Interview of J.T. Black Dune Sr., March the 22nd, 1970, 12.30 a.m. And Mr. Black Dune, do you mind me recording this interview? I do not object. Do you serve the Lady of the Hollows? Why don't you ask her yourself? Is Catherine the Lady of the Hollows? Did she kill her husband? You do not need to consult me to answer those questions. What is it you really want to ask? That doesn't make any sense. None of this makes sense. Why doesn't anyone remember what they say? What has she done to them? Most everyone tries to forget. But a few, they try to remember. They want others to hear. Those upon whom... I only want to know what she's after. No, I don't even... I only need to know how to stop it. What stops all of this? What should I do? Testify. You know. I can't do that. Testify. No, I'd be ruined. You must choose. She's already there, in the hollows of your mind. What will you say? What will you not say? It's not all in my head. I'm not crazy. You are not crazy. Why is she doing this to me? She commands no one. She makes you do nothing. You go. Willingly. No. No, I won't go. I won't. I won't go. The sound of his muttering was difficult to take, but not nearly as difficult as the silence that followed, for the recording continued for seven and a half minutes, though neither voice said another word. There may have been soft sobbing, or laughter, or both. The first interview of Catherine replays, a recording of a recording, then static. Always the static. Then the creaking of the floorboards, then the door closing, the footsteps and taps receding. Click. The tape stops. I sat in the chair, afraid to move, wary of the shifting of silent air. It was like the moment when, as a child, you prepare to jump onto your bed, avoiding whatever hands may be waiting to grab you from beneath the box spring. You do it fast and you don't look. You tuck yourselves into the covers. You know it's silly, but sometimes... You do it even when you're older. I shoved the cassettes into the file cabinet, locked it, grabbed my coat, shut off the lamp, and fled. I strode up the hill to my apartment, not daring to look down any alley, nor into any window. I especially did not look in the direction of the smelter, empty and abandoned by the canal. 
The next morning, it was no surprise to hear the talk in the office. Peter Lottie had left from the top of the lift bridge. How he got up there, no one could explain. The other seemed sad and ashamed as they gathered around the steaming coffee pot. I felt desperate. I felt myself burdened by the knowledge of all things. Knowing the beginning, I knew the ending. Or rather, I saw there was no beginning, and therefore no ending. Fictions. There's no controlling things. That evening, after everyone had left, I gathered the cassettes and stowed them away in my apartment. I began making plans to move. I never finished my doctorate. Three months later, I fled downstate to the Lower Peninsula. I thought of tossing the cassettes out my window as I drove beside the long, sagging cables of the Mackinac Bridge. I could have thrown them into the waves to sink, to drown, to be quieted forever. But there was no real escape from a voice once you've heard it. Half a page of blank space separates the final paragraphs of the manuscript, which seem to have been typed at a later time. I hear them through the walls. When a sliding door opens, the croaking commandments slipping through the wind, drifting through the lobby. There are no young voices here, but from across the canal, from over the crests of Quincy Hill and Mont Ripley, from some undisturbed glen secreted away in shadow from the grinding machinations of time. She sings a muttering song. And my heart screws tight because there by the canal, out my hotel window, I see her. Finally, after all these years, a hazy outline in the falling snow, a white blur erases her feet, making her wavy body seem to float Frost coats her bare arms, and yet she doesn't shiver. A thin, glimmering arm reaches out to beckon me with an open hand. I want to see her eyes, but they are lost in shadow. Is, is that what I will look like when my lips turn blue and shadows surround my eyes? I remember what Benjamin Faircrown said. You cannot blame her. Look at the jagged icicles dangling from her young, white hair. I feel she is not only a tormentor, but a victim. She, like myself, is woven into the circle of persecution she did not choose. No beginning, no ending. You can't recite it away. Lottie's stammering hesitations haunt me. For seven years I have felt my own voice fading away. I do not want to disappear forever. Better to merge than die. I leave this so all may know. When she called, I went willingly. I felt I owed it to her. After all, I'd done no more than Lottie to find out the truth. He left the cassettes. I leave these papers. And now, you who have been reading these things, understand the spool will not stop spinning until they have intertwined your own voice with relentless loops. You will follow the path of Lottie and myself, and who knows how many others, into the forgiving cold and annihilating heat. Whichever we choose, we, the lesser witnesses, 
as long as her whispers linger out there in the hills and waters, she will call for you too. Until you go to where we all go, to the earthen chasm where our voices mingle and fade. And so, when at last you hear the whistle through your bedroom window turn into a murmur, what testament will you leave, the Lady of the Hollows? Witness James H. Kowalczyk When Detective Hermelson listened to the five unlabeled cassettes, he found no references to J.T. Blackdoon or the Lady of the Hollows, nor did he find a single interview of Catherine Kukula. The unusual details reported by Kowalczyk simply did not exist. The only disturbing element was the last cassette, in which Lottie did in fact hold a conversation with himself. He debated the details uncovered by his investigation from two opposing points of view, trying to determine whether or not Miss Kakula had been responsible for her husband's death. Far from reflecting an abrupt slide into insanity, the one-person dialogue seemed like the rational process of an intelligent man trying to reconcile contradictory facts. Struggling to determine his ethical duty in the event his client had committed murder due to an underlying mental illness. Having listened to Lottie's unsettling observations about Catherine, Detective Hermelson reopened the case of Tom Kakula's death at the Quincy Smelter 14 years prior, but he found himself in an immediate dead end. The smelter had ceased operations over 10 years ago. All reports of the incident were lost. Moreover, no evidence showed that Tom Kakula ever had been married. There was no Catherine Kukula, neither according to private interviews nor to public records. Hermelson determined the case was nothing but an elaborate hoax. Then he closed the file. When I tracked him down, his former colleagues either could not or would not tell me where he went. He retired on short notice in 1991. In his final years, he'd shown signs of rapid mental deterioration, speaking in mumbled half-sentences. I based my report on the few comments he made to colleagues, as well as documents I received pursuant to a Freedom of Information Act. FOIA request. Perhaps I should note one last thing that was shared with me under condition of anonymity. Uh, she was a junior detective at the time of Hiromosan's retirement. In the final months before his departure, whenever the snow was falling, she would find him alone in his office chair turned away from his desk, staring with glassy eyes at the frozen canal. When the junior detective asked what he was looking at, Hermelson replied, a highway of obsidian, a man without a coat, walking down it, getting buried, getting forgiven, dissolving. <laughs> she asked what he was talking about, if he was still working the Kowalczyk case, in response to which, he chuckled and replied, There's nothing to solve. This is no crime. Not under the laws of men and women. Not under the laws of any god. She asked him to say more, but uh, he acted as if he hadn't heard. <laughs>